this is <clears throat> what everybody seems to get wrong about morality. And I'm not, I already know because of the way I did the title and thumb, I'm not trying to be like all aggressively in your face exactly, but I think it's a pervasive issue in our society and it's something we need to think about, especially as followers of Christ, because moral errors and moral issues are the worst mistakes we can make in life. If you look back at your past, usually the moral mistakes, the mistakes that were about morality, the, 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 the sin issues are the biggest things wrong that you've ever done. And this is a pervasive moral error that is throughout our culture and our society. And it's in the, in the minds and hearts of many Christians as they try to work through moral reasoning, ethical reasoning as Christians. And this, I think this study today is going to help you with this massively. This is what everyone in the world seems to get wrong about morality. And I'm not saying because Mike's going to correct you. No, Jesus is going to correct you. Jesus is correcting me, correcting you, correcting the world on this topic of morality. This is actually a theme he has going through the Gospels where Jesus encounters people and he has to sort of fix their understanding of morals. And we need this as much today as they needed it then. This is the Mark series, part 49. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark right now. I do a couple videos a week on YouTube doing, you know, studies to help you learn to think biblically about everything, whether it's verse by verse studies, Q&A, or videos exposing Kenneth Copeland and his nonsense, <laughs> all of the above. That was yesterday. <laughs> and uh, today we're in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34. And you already are familiar with this passage. Um, uh, many of you are. I'm really just going to help you, hopefully, understand it more deeply and apply it more thoroughly in your life. That's the idea here. We get a sincere questioner. He he um, he asks Jesus about what the heart of the law or the most important commandment is. And Jesus gives a brilliant, and I mean like, I'm not overusing that term here, a brilliant, perfect answer about not only the law of the Old Testament, but about moral truth in general and what should be the overarching moral principle in the mind of Christians. But even those who hear this moral principle frequently apply it completely wrong. So we're going to talk about all that today. Stick around to the end because you're going to want the details. Mark 12, 28. Here we are in the NASB translation. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he had asked, uh, that he had answered them well, that Jesus had answered these people well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Question mark. Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Let me give you now the background because I, 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 in my studies very frequently, I like to start by reading the whole section of scripture we're focusing on that day. I want to get it in your mind because my goal here isn't just to tell you what the Bible says, but to help you learn how to process through scripture yourself. So we, you, you know, first thing you should do is just read the text, just read the whole thing and then go back over it and read it again, but just be asking questions and trying to understand it more deeply. Well, that's what we're going to do right now. Here's our round two going through it again. 
we get it. There's a scribe. He asked Jesus a question. Jesus tells him that love is the moral imperative. Love God with everything. Love others as yourself. And then we have some details about how, you know, about the guy that asked some neat things about him that are give evidence of historicity, believe it or not, to the New Testament. We'll come to that later. Let's go through it carefully, though, verse by verse, understand it in context. And, oh, man, my heart is that um, you and me would get the heart of what it means to love God, to follow Christ, to serve him in this world, that it actually has a moral imperative that almost everyone's ignoring. And if you didn't notice it yet, that's why you need this video. If you didn't, if I didn't just read it to you and you go, and that's exactly where everyone gets it wrong. If you didn't do that, then you will soon, I think. So Mark 12, 28, let's look at these verses one at a time. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he'd answered them well, asked him, what is the, uh, what commandment is the foremost of all? What's the most important commandment? Let's talk about the scribe for a second. The scribe is just listening to Jesus. Um, verse 28 talks about things that have already been happening in Mark chapter 12. We've gone over this in the past few weeks in the Mark series. Uh, basically, Jesus is confronted by different different obstinate crowds, different groups of people who want to try to get Jesus in trouble. They ask insincere bait and trick questions, right? The Pharisees and Herodians come and they're asking Jesus a question about taxes meant to get him in trouble either with the crowd or with Caesar one or the other, depending on how Jesus answers. Then he answers them well, very well. In fact, they've got nothing to say at the end of that. So then the Sadducees come and they ask him a question about the resurrection because they don't really believe in the resurrection. So they ask him kind of like a skeptical trick question. And Jesus answers them well. And then the, and then what's cool about the scribe is he's just listening. Like he's, he's not the guy in the debate. He's the guy watching the debate. And I don't know if you know this, but debates, I've learned this, right? Debates aren't really for the debaters. You're, you know, you see a debater, a Christian and a non-Christian, you're thinking, I hope the Christian changes the mind of the non-Christian. That almost never happens, but it happens to the audience. It happens to the people watching the debate. The scribe is the guy watching the debate. He's just listening, right? He's part of a hostile group, right? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. The scribe is actually part of that Sanhedrin group, it seems, but he himself is not hostile. He's a non-hostile guy that's part of a hostile group. It's good to remind ourselves that some of our listeners when we're typing on social media, when we're sharing, witnessing with people, that they're like that. They're, they might be in the opposition, so to speak, but they're they're open, they're listening, they're considering, they're thoughtful. Keep this in mind, application for us, keep this in mind when you're on social media, when you're in crowds or when you're out witnessing, it's often easy to get jaded, right? Because we, we get, and it'd be easy for me to do it too, because like I read my YouTube comments and uh, in some cases it's filled with really kind, wonderful words and people offering a lot of great insights but there's also a lot of people who offer challenges that are that are um less than reasonable and so i can i can fall into that trap of then treating them all like they're that same sort of sarcastic um closed-minded person but this guy's not like that so it's a good reminder when you're on social media don't react to people like they're closed-minded just because they said something you disagree with that's just a good reminder um so here he gets into it with this scribe. The scribe's like, hey, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus answers, verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, that's not the commandment yet. Hear, O Israel, is Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verse 4. This is like the ultimate verse for the Old Testament for the Jewish person. So it's not surprising that Jesus goes to this passage. Probably 100 years after Jesus, we have confirmation that Jews morning and night, they would start their day and end their day by saying Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hero Israel, the Lord our God. 
the Lord is one. They would say this. This is called the Shema. And it's called the Shema because the first word in the verse is hear, or Shema, hear, O Israel. Although I say Shema and I think Shmi and then I think Smi and then I think Captain Hook. But at any rate, <laughs> um, Jesus affirms something here that's really interesting to me on an ethical standpoint. And ethics is a big issue. It's an important issue. And it's a deep philosophical area of, of research as well. But Jesus dips right into the area, the realm of moral philosophy. And he acknowledges something that people sometimes miss. There is a command that is foremost. That means there are certain moral rules that are more important than other moral rules. That actually changes the way I view things. I mean, it actually does. And, and, and I think I need to say this because this is what Jesus is saying. How that plays out is, 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 is we'll talk more about. But basically it means this, that those who say that all sin is the same, they don't have a really biblical view. All sin is wicked. All sin is horribly wicked. Any, any, even, a, even a little sin, quote in air quotes here, even a little sin is actually a serious issue, but not all sin is identical. And I have a whole video on this if anybody's interested about we have to stop saying that all sin is the same. And I give lots and lots of scripture to support the idea that all sin is not the same. Here's another verse I didn't share in that video where Jesus offers one command being more important than others, which means it's a bigger, it's a bigger issue when you violate this command versus other commands. All sin is not the same. So this impacts my moral reasoning. It impacts my moral reasoning in a few other ways too. If I fail on this foremost command, on this most important issue that Jesus will talk about, loving God and loving others, if I fail on this, then it doesn't matter that much how well I did in other areas. That's significant. That's profound, right? This is where Paul in 1 Corinthians, maybe he gets this from Jesus right here because he says, if I do all this and I do all that, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Because love is the ultimate pervasive command that should be the obsessive, you know, thought, the obsessive purpose, the, the constant flavor of all that I do in life. It should all be love. And if I live this life without that love, I've abandoned the most important aspect of what I'm doing. I'm like the Pharisee who tithed mint and cumin, but neglected the weightier matters of the law. So yeah, you see like the, the weight of this, the, the impact of this on our lives. Pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. So here we go, verse 30. What is that weightier command? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Let me just pause for a second. And we'll, we'll get into the second command, which is similar, right? You love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. But get this, that this is no flippy floppy love. This is love with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. The number one command is that you have an all-consuming love for God, not for anything else for God. This is why Jesus could say, you know, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't, you can't follow me. He just means not like you actually hate them, right? This is a hyperbolic sense in which you choose Jesus over all else. He is the number one. He is the ultimate thing. He is my first love. Jesus is my first love. God is my first love above all others, above myself and above my neighbors even. Now this is um, from Deuteronomy 6.5. So Jesus in his answer, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5. Then he also quotes Leviticus 19.18. That's in verse 31 there. I'll put it on the screen for you guys. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Um, there it is. There's a bit of a delay there, but um, yeah, verse 
verse uh, 31 is from Leviticus 19.18. I mention that because a lot of people don't realize this love thing is Old Testament. Jesus isn't teaching something new, right? He's summarizing something old. That's the idea. When Jesus offers his moral imperative to the world, it's not like no one's ever thought of this before. Although it was rare for people to summarize morals with, with love as the center of their morality. And even more rare for them to summarize it as love of God first and love of people second. This is extremely rare. It's even more rare today. It's almost completely non-existent today in our modern philanthropy, humanism, all that is the opposite of this. It exalts mankind as though they are God instead of putting God in that first place of love. So that's hugely important to know. Hugely important to know. But this also has implications then for the morality I have as a human being in that in that um, sin, if, if love is the greatest command, then sin is in every instance of sin, it is in some sense a failure to love. Now this, if you'll stop and like meditate on it for some time, and I encourage you to do it, I think it just blows your mind that sin is in its very nature a failure to love. I'm not loving God when I sin, and that is the most grievous part of sin. When Adam ate of the fruit, it wasn't just rebellion. It was, I, I just don't love you first, God. I'm going to do this thing because I, because I just don't care about you that much. Wow. This is not, um, this changes things, right? Because there are those who are raised in the church, and I've heard this before from, now I wasn't raised in the church from a little, real, real young age. So sometimes when I hear people who were raised in the church and they describe Christianity and they describe their church experience, I'm like, ew, like, what did you experience? You know, <laughs> because, because I came to Christ and it was like my life was transformed and I experienced relationship with God and I never really expected the church to be perfect. Right, because I I thought Jesus was the perfect one and God was the perfect one, and the church was just people like me who were like, "Wow, I'm I, you know I'm an idiot who, who who's come to know the Savior." But some people that are raised in the church, they're very and, and maybe this is you, very harsh and judgmental towards the church, and very loving and gracious towards the world. And I think that this is a, a dangerous imbalance of princip of principles. Not that you want to be harsh and judgmental to the world and gracious to the church. It's like no, just be gracious to everybody. But at any rate, there are those who say, and they, they're raised in the church, and they grow up, and they say things like, you know, I, I tried being Christian for a while, and, you know, it was all just a bunch of rules. All just a bunch of rules. Now, again, being somebody who did not come up through the church, like I wasn't in children's ministry. The first time I heard a children's song, I was a teenager, and I was like, there's Christian songs? Like, I was, I was shocked. <laughs> I was surprised by it. And, um, and those who say that the Christian church is just all about rules, I think that they, it, it evidences that they don't understand, get this, the actual foundational morality of the church. The foundational morality is love, which means that all the, quote, rules are just expressions of love. So when you look at the church and you see like this call of holiness that's coming, hopefully coming from the local fellowship to live unspotted from the world and to, and to die to yourself and to put off sin and to watch your mouth and to not, uh, uh, you know, partake of wicked things in the world, no matter how fun they are, no matter how nice they look. When you, when you hear, when you feel these oppressive rules, it's like, you don't realize this is just about love. It's like telling a husband and you don't look at other women and you don't flirt with other women and you don't have private conversations with other women because these are all the rules. No, because you love your wife. Because you love your wife. It's all love. Holiness is just an expression of love towards God. And that blows my mind.
The second I think that, that God's moral laws are purely about do and don't, like behaviors, and don't realize that they are all in relation to loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. The moment I do that, I have taken the relational aspect out of, out of my holiness, out of, out of my religion. I've taken that out, and I've left myself with policies that don't have a purpose, except maybe to preserve myself. So then I have to convince people to do good to make themselves, make their lives better. You know, you, you want to, you know, honor your father and mother because it's going to be well with you, right? But there, and that's true. It'll be well with you. You know, doing good, good things will generally happen in your life. Generally, not always, right? But, but that's not the whole purpose. Like that's like the bottom rung of morality. When you climb the, the, the ladder and you get to the top, you realize this whole thing's all been about love and, and kindness and mercy and compassion the whole time. So Jesus's brilliant moral that he gives us is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you do that, you will never sin. I mean, I'm not going to do that perfectly and neither are you. But hypothetically, if I walked in that every day, all day long, I would literally never sin. Just love. Just the one rule of love. Love God and then love others as myself secondarily. And that's the next thing I want to point out, which is that our love for God is not on par in any way, shape, or form with my love for man. I love my fellow man. I love God immeasurably more. That's proper morality. And this is a offensive nature, I think, of the truth of, of, of God. It's offensive to people because it takes humans and it brings them down where they belong, down here, and it puts God up here where he belongs and says, you should love God more than people. So when I preach the gospel, someone gets offended and they reject me. That was an expression of love towards God, even if they didn't respect it or appreciate it. And that's okay. That's fine. That's good enough for me. It's the primacy of loving God. I love God. According to Jesus, you have to love God more than you love yourself. Pause on that for a second. More than I love me? Because like I kind of love me a lot. Like I think about me all the time. When I'm hungry, I feed me. When I'm tired, I sleep me. <laughs> when I'm, you know, whatever it is. When I, you know, the, I, I, I purposely surround myself, my, my life with things that I enjoy. Commitments that I want to commit to. I say no to things and yes to things based upon those desires. At least that's my natural, normal thing to do. But you're saying I should love God more than me? Where, like, let's say that God says, Mike, your life is going to involve a lot of suffering, but it will be for my glory. That I would look to the Lord and say, you know what, God, I love you so much that it's worth it. Because you're more important than me. That's a serious kind of love. And I think that's offensive to people. Or you think it's beautiful. It's probably one or the other. Either it's offensive or you think it's beautiful. But this is what everybody gets wrong about morality. Carnality. Sinful carnality is often disguised. In, even in preaching from pulpits, it's often disguised as love for men, but with without the love for God in its proper place. And when I... And, I hope I can communicate this well, but when, when in some pulpits, when they speak of God's love, they don't generally speak of loving God. They only speak of God's love for me. And that to me is a red flag, right? Uh, God loves me. So God wants me to have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and all these things, but they don't generally speak of me loving God, right? But the greatest command is not Mike, God loves you. That's not a command. That's just a reality. God loves me. The command is for me to love God. And that I think is what's missing from some of the, what I'm going to, I'm going to call daddy theology. Um, I know that's kind of a weird term to use. It's just what in my head, I keep dubbing it when I hear preaching that speaks of God's love for us, but doesn't speak of an, of a response of incredible self-sacrificial love towards God, where God is more important than me. Um, 
I'll call that daddy theology because <laughs> God is seen as like this sort of like super, like not a father, right? A father who's, who's, who's the authoritarian and authority and disciplinarian of the home. Right. But, but like a daddy who's like, you know, when, when my, my sister were growing up, when she wanted something from our stepdad, she'd be like, daddy, all of a sudden he was daddy. Cause she wanted something that kind of theology. <laughs> so hopefully that makes sense to somebody. Um, so I think there's a lot of errors that come into the prosperity gospel or in humanism because we ignore the primacy of loving God first. Um, I'll give you another example of, of how atheists don't understand this. Now, atheists, this is not an attack on you, okay? Like, you might be like, there's things I don't think Christians understand, right? Well, I think there's some things that perhaps atheists don't understand. And I'll give you an example of one, and you tell me if you already understood this. Christopher Hitchens, who was one of the most famous atheists of our last generation, he would do debates, and one of the things he would like to spring on people in debates uh, on Christians he's debating is the question, what moral thing can a Christian do that an atheist can't do? And he would do this all the time. I mean, he, it was like a mantra of his in his debates. Tell me one moral thing that a Christian can do that an atheist can't do. And so often his debate partners would just go, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. And they wouldn't have anything. And that, um, here's something uh, I think is common in modern day atheism, pop atheism online, is that if they ask a question you don't know how to answer, then it, then they think they've they've they're, they've won. <laughs> like, like you just saying I don't know, it means they're right, which is not how reality works, right? Because <laughs> otherwise, every three year old is right as soon as they learn how to say why, why, why. But um, that's not how reality works. But at any rate, one pastor finally answered Christopher Hitchens, and he says, "Well, what moral thing can a Christian do that an atheist can't do? Tithe." <laughs> and I thought I thought that's. That's probably not the best answer. Technically, sort of, yeah. I mean, atheists aren't going to tithe. But as I thought about it, I sat down and I did what sometimes I do. I just hit pause on the debate and I sat and I went, hmm, how would I answer that? What would be a moral thing a Christian could do that an atheist can't do? And then it hit me. The most important moral thing that anybody can do. Loving God. Like it doesn't occur to the atheist or even many Christians that were debating Christopher Hitchens. That loving God, the most important moral imperative of the universe, is something an atheist cannot do. So the atheist is deprived of the highest moral imperative a Christian or a human is made for. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. This is humanism. Humanism is let's, let's take care of each other, let's hold hands, but let's ignore God. Let's just leave God out of it. Let's not talk about God. Let's not worry about honoring God. We'll just take care of ourselves. But that's just rebuilding the Tower of Babel, right? Gathering together to do our own thing, independent of God. And this is a scary trend in our culture, and it's a religious trend. I see the reversing of the two commands, right? Jesus is like, love God with everything you've got. And second, love your neighbor in a lesser degree as you love yourself, which is still a massive amount of love, but nothing compared to the love we have for God. But the religious trend I see is reversing these two commands, loving the other person, becomes the ultimate command. Loving God is like a footnote where you're, you're like, well, when I love them, I'm loving God automatically. And then that's really the only concern. That's not how Jesus did it. And it's not how I should do it. And it's the thing that people get wrong on morals. So how do I keep from that error? Um, when the Bible actually teaches that loving others is an expression of loving God, Right? So here's the balance. Here's the nuance. Right? We're, we, don't, we don't just want like uh, talking points. We want to understand scripture and how to apply it really thoughtfully into our lives. This moral imperative, it's gonna, if it's going to be real, 
I need to be able to like live it out and not just discuss it in theory. So scripture on one hand, it says, love God. He's the ultimate. He gets all your love and, and, and others have a secondary love, right? It's the love you have equal to the love you have for yourself, but it's not as great as your love for God. But yet in first John, in other places in the new Testament, we learn that loving other humans is the way I express my love for God. So what am I, well, I'm confused now. If I'm loving other people and that is loving God, then then how can Mike say that loving people can replace loving God and then it can actually be like a kind of idolatry? I think it's the the test, the rubber hits the road is is where I don't allow my love for other people to compromise holiness or moral truth or serving God in my life. And that's how I know that that love for them is in the context of my love for God. I'll give you an example. Um, I love my neighbor and my neighbor wants me to approve of, you know, living, say a homosexual lifestyle. And they're like, I'm not, not just say like, I, I have temptations or something, but they're living an active homosexual lifestyle, sexual experiences and all that. And then they're like implying, you know, if you don't approve of this, then you're not really loving me. And doesn't your God tell you to love me? And I'll say, yeah, but I love him first and loving him first means that I cannot lie about what's right and what's wrong. And so even though you might want my love for you to turn into approval for sin, I can't do that because God is the one I love first. And so it's it's where that holiness line causes us to say to somebody, I cannot approve of you or I can't hold hands with you on this issue. That's That's why Jesus says you have to hate your father and mother. It's like there comes a dividing line and we always pick God when someone stands opposed to God and they say, him or me, we always say him every time, every time, hands down. That's just what's right. So let me talk about some things that our culture does wrong on this issue. Get more rubber meets road stuff. Um, our culture misunderstands the moral priority of love because we think first, first error, we think that this makes it easier to be moral, right? Morality is not just about like abstaining from all those things. It's just about love. But, and I won't labor on this because I could talk about this forever, but I think you guys get the point. The, the thing why I think this is wrong, the area where I think this like shows itself to be a, you know, problematic is we, we pretend love is about having some measure of good intention or positive feelings, but biblically speaking, love is about purity and actions, not positive intentions, right? Like I remember being a teenager and thinking, I love everybody. Do you remember being, maybe you are a teenager and you think this too, and maybe this will be, be interesting for you to hear. When I was a teen, if you, I was like 17 years old, and then I, you asked me like, do you love everybody, Mike? I'd be like, I love everybody. And I'm thinking people in China, people in Yugoslavia, people who live on the moon or wherever they live, you know, wherever humans are. And I don't really, I'm not Joseph Smith. I don't think people really on the moon, but wherever people are, I just love them all. And that's fine, like if I want to live in la-la land and have make-believe people in my head that I just love. But if you started naming off the people in my high school, right? Name off all the other guys that I knew in high school. What about that guy? You love him? Oh, I don't know about him. And you see, I felt like my nice intentions towards humans in general was the same thing as loving people. Yet the real people I was interacting with on a daily basis, I didn't really love them very well. And that's the delusion our world gets into, right? We think I love everybody, but I hate that guy and I hate that guy and I hate that guy. And yeah, that, that's one way where we get things wrong in our culture. Love doesn't make morality easier. Love makes it actually way harder. The minute you realize that holiness means love, 
love towards God first and others second. That's when you realize if you see, are seeing clearly that you utterly fall short of God's moral requirement. That every single day you fail to love others like yourself and you fail to love God with everything you've got. Every day. Love is a higher standard, not a lower standard. That's where our world gets it wrong. They think love lowers the standard and makes way for sin. Love eliminates all sin and shows us how we're actually desperately in need of the cross of Christ, desperately in need of God's grace. It's a harder standard than people realize. So I love God above even myself. Um, that's something the world doesn't ever get, right? God serves me as far as the world's concerned. Uh, the world often will go to God and they have a list and it's getting more popular now, a list of demands. With God, there's a list of demands. This is ingratitude. This is not thanking God for what he's already done for us. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a type of bitterness. Lord, if you do this for me, Lord, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll think about, you know, loving you, serving you. Do this, 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 if you do these things for me. And so God becomes my servant. I love me. And as much as God serves me, I will love him. If he doesn't, I, I, I hate him. And that's sad. That's sad. Love God above yourself. Love God above yourself. That's, that's the actual command. And it's just what's morally right. Now I want to debunk some other common confusions and distortions of this Christian ethic of love. Because again, as I titled the video, this is exactly what's wrong with everyone's morality. I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I mean, every single human being in the world, uh, I'm not going to say that really. But, but there's so many people that get this wrong. So here are some common confusions and distortions of Jesus's ethic of love. First one, love is not the goal. Love is the command, it's not the goal. Loving God is the goal. Think about this for a second. There are those who love the idea of love, but they're not actually very loving. They think they're loving because they are really serious about the idea of love. Or somebody who loves the idea of romance, but not of relationship, of godly relationship. So we all know those people, like in, in when you were younger, maybe you still know them, who um, they love the honeymoon phase of a relationship, but they don't love commitment, which means they actually despise what relationship's really about, but they love getting into relationship, getting the, getting the tinglys of the honeymoon phase, but they're never, ever committed long-term. And there's an example of somebody who loves love, but doesn't love loving, right? They're not interested in actually being loving. So I would say love, love is not the goal. You can't just slap the word love on whatever you're doing and make it okay. The phrase love is love, to support, say, the LGBT um, agenda is, is, is nonsense. Love is love. Well, first off, it, that's just, you're just literally saying, I could say like dictionaries or dictionaries. Like it doesn't actually mean anything to say love is love. What they really mean by that is because we have these feelings of love, this endorses my behavior. But this doesn't work on a Christian ethic because I'm to love God first. And he says, don't do this. This isn't how I designed you. This isn't what you're made for. And so loving God first means I can't say love is love and throw an approval sticker on any behavior I want that I associate with love because loving God is first. Love isn't the goal. Loving God is the goal. Love also isn't approval and support for life choices. This is huge. We know God loves the world. God doesn't approve of the world. God doesn't support the decisions of the world. He just loves them. And it's the same sense that I, I want to, like this is Christianity 101. I want to do this with my neighbor as well and say, look, I love you. I don't love that you're, you're Muslim and, you, and you've rejected the Messiah. You've rejected Christ. You, you, you say that one of the greatest sins is to just say that Jesus is the son of God. Oh, I, I, I hate that. I love you. I hate that. I love you. I hate the sin you're committing, the thing that's destroying you, the thing that pulls you away from God. 
I don't have to approve of you, right? I don't have to think you're right to care about you. This, this, is, this is what we all learn in kindergarten and we just forget when we get to college. <laughs> Love is not approval and support for everyone's life choices. Jesus rebuked people. Approval and support isn't even love. In fact, when you approve and support people and they're doing wrong things, that's not loving, that's harmful. It's love-ish. It looks like love to people, but it's not. It's actually destructive. Your best friends are the ones who are willing to tell you that you're making mistakes. Why? Because love doesn't mean approving. Finally, uh, or third, third common confusion, love is not about sex. Um, sex is... It's important. It's good. It's a wonderful thing. It's not something Christians should be ashamed of, although it should be protected and kept private and kept hidden appropriately between a, a couple. I mean, not hidden for them, but hidden to the world. That's that's the right appropriate way to do that. Uh, that's the nature of intimacy is that you keep it intimate. But, but love isn't about sex. And the, the majority of the ways we express love is not boyfriend, girlfriend type ways, not husband, wife type ways. Usually when you're expressing love, you're you're not doing it in a romantic fashion like that. And I think especially young people get confused on this topic. This is where we get the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of stuff, right? Because you want you you, you from the Bible, you know, love God with all I've got, but from the world you think love is all about a million fall in love relationship movies and shows that I've watched. And so in my head, love is all about romance. It's all about boy meets girl stuff. And then I'm supposed to love God the most. So you just start projecting these like weird boy meets girl kind of mentalities onto Jesus. And it's like, no, no, he, he's better than that. <laughs> Bigger than that. Most of the love we have in our life is more brotherly. It's it's it's, it's um, parent, child, it's brother, sister, it's friend, it, it, it's loved ones, family members. It's not romantic like that. And our love for God isn't like that. So love is about self-sacrifice and it's expressing care for others. It's not about sex. And I think that confusion is massive um, and causes a lot of problems later too, because then young people, they think that they're entering into this like fairy tale experience of, of love and romance. And they realize that they're heading into a train wreck because they're chasing the feelings of love. They're not actually chasing loving behaviors, commitments, and self-sacrificial actions because they, they don't, they can't figure out if they have a Christian worldview or a worldly worldview. Another one, number four, love is not justification for sin. If you say we love each other, therefore we can sleep together. You're not loving each other. That's not love. Right? That's not love. You should say I, we love each other, so we won't sin together, right? Because we're going to love God first. I'm not going to bring sin into this. In this, I love this person. I won't bring sin into their life. Like this again, Christianity 101. But um, everybody needs to get back to this. If you're tempted, for instance, if you're tempted by a relationship. You, you get married or you break it off, right? Like, I don't mean just get married recklessly, but these are the options, ultimately. Um, as, a, as, a, as a husband, I don't engage in long back and forth, you know, conversations in private with, with people on Messenger, with girls on Messenger. I just don't, right? Unless it's like my mom or my sister. Like, I just don't. This is not going to happen, right? This is going to be like, here, I have the reason to connect. That's it. If I even have a hint of something weird, some girl sends me and, and, and girls, maybe you want to know this. Some girl sends me a weird message. I read it to my wife. Well, oh, I got this weird message from this girl. Here's what it, I read it to her. Then I read her what I'm writing back or if I block the person or whatever. And that's, that's love. That's, and, I mean, I'm loving the person by blocking their message. That's actually love because, because love is not a justification for sin. Love never competes with holiness ever, ever, ever. And for the many, many progressive Christians, 
who are out there using the term love as a, uh, a cloak for sin and carnality. It's the same as when, when Paul wrote to the early church not to use their freedom and liberty as a cloak for their carnality, right? We are good at justifying sin. Love can't justify sin because love will love God first and would never sin against him. So yeah, love, lovey-dovey-dove. I would also say that this means that um, right theology is like love towards God. I mean, well, we'll come back to that. Learning good theology is loving towards God. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, Jesus then, speaking of that, Jesus talks about four specific ways of loving God. And there are different ways of interpreting these words. He says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And those four words, people like really debate, like, what is it? What is, what was meant by heart? What about soul? What about mind? What about strength? How are they different than each other? How is heart and soul not the same thing? And so I've done some studying on this, but I'm going to summarize it because most of it is like, you know, when I, when it's good for Bible teachers to know, these are the things you study that you go, most of this is not helpful. This is not going to bless the people to get into this debate. Let me just give you some conclusions. Um, and there are different interpretations of these words. But the funny thing is, is if someone goes, well, the heart means this, they then they say, well, the soul means that. And others just reverse that. So we end up with all the same pieces, even if you debate about which word gets what piece. First one, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh, again, some would say this is about your mind. Others might say it's about your emotions. I, I tend to think this is about sincerity or singleness of commitment all your heart. Um, as in other words, the opposite would be having a divided heart. Lord, I love you, but I'm also equally committed to this other thing that is bringing me into conflict with that love for you. No, loving God with all my heart means there's a fullness, a singleness of commitment, undivided commitment to God. God is first. God is primary. This is, and this is connected because Jesus says the Lord is one and therefore you'll love him with all your heart. There's this there's poetry in, in that concept that's there. God is chief. He's first. He's chief in all things. If there's something you wouldn't give to God, if there's something your heart would hold on to, if God told you to let go of it, then there's something wrong in your heart. That doesn't mean God wants you to let go of everything. It just means hypothetically, if, if there's something I wouldn't give to God, then I need to rethink my priorities. I remember talking to a, a, a teen one year about this issue and we're talking about music, what music is right and wrong to listen to. And I realized in listening to the conversation that it sounded like the, the teen wasn't interested in what was right and wrong. He just wanted to do what he wanted to do. And um, that concerned me more than the music. I'm like, the music's totally secondary to this issue because there's a divided heart here. And so I asked him a question, hypothetical. And uh, what do you think of this? I said, if God came to you right now and told you, the only music you can ever listen to is polka. Like polka, 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 that, that's, that's all you ever get. It's the only music that I will, I will approve of for you to listen to. Would you obey God? Was my question to the teen. And he stopped and he went, polka? <laughs> like I picked polka on purpose, right? And he says, polka? No offense to those who love polka, but he didn't, he didn't love it. And most people don't. <laughs> so, um, so he, he, he said, polka, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I would really obey God on that. And then I said, see, that that is a bigger issue than what music you're listening to. You have a divided heart. That's the issue. We must love God with all of our heart, that it all belongs to him. Everything is his. I told you this was hard, harder than people make it sound. 
Love God with all your soul. That's the next one. With all your soul. And this could soul can refer to life. It could also, in some context, refer to emotions and feelings and affections. I think here, in my opinion, soul seems to be talking about your purpose. It's like what your life is about, right? My, my existence. I'm going to love God with the very purpose of my life. And... This means then that loving God, that having, this should just supposed to be a normal, this isn't just like, oh, on fire Christians are like this, but the rest of us are down here. No, guys, like this is Christianity 101. God is more important than you or anything else. I rung my coffee cup there for you. I was like, just so you know, that emphasize the point. Um, so God's more important than all those things. He deserves the entire purpose of my life. He's not supplemental. I'm not adding God just an addition to my life. I mean, he is God almighty. And to place anything up on his level or near him is just a, is just idolatry. I'm either bringing God down or, down or I'm lifting something else up inappropriately. God is what I'm actually living for. This is something that we often miss because we're just sort of going through life. But the things you live for are the things that without this, your life feels like it's without purpose. Some people are just living for their work and one day they retire and they go through a crisis because they're like, not only do I not have much to do, but I feel like my life's not about anything anymore. And then they come to this sad realization that their life was just about work. Like that's what their life that they were loving with all their soul was just work because they never really filled their soul with love for God. My statement to you is this. If God is what you love with all your soul, if your whole life purpose is about God, you will feel fulfilled in life no matter what your scenario is. Even if you're retired, even if you're lying on a bed and you're unable to be productive in the world at all, you know that your existence is actually just to love God above all else. And so there's a sense of satisfaction that, that humans can and should have in their lives because loving God is their ultimate purpose and that can be done in any situation and any scenario of life. And I, I would like to impart to more of us that sense of purpose fulfilled in knowing and loving God, right? This is, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, right? That is, that is love God with all your soul, man. Just think about that for the next 10 years, please, please. And then love God with all your mind. The third thing Jesus says, love God with all your mind. Uh, mind here is the intellect. Okay. There isn't much debate on this. This word in particular, definitely Jesus meant your brain or your, your mind, I should say, um, your intellect, and here's where this hits us in a couple different ways. One is learning to like do what I hope to do with this YouTube channel, with my online ministries, help people learn to think biblically about everything. I want to take them deep into theology. I think theology is an expression of loving God when you do it for God, right? If you do it because you're just learning trivia, that's, it's just trivial information. If you do it just to prove people wrong on things, that's, I mean, there you go. It, it becomes ego and pride. But if you do it because you love God, that's different. You see, I, I love my wife. And so I want to know what she's doing. So she has hobbies and I'm like asking about her hobbies, even though normally I would have no interest in those hobbies, but I'm trying to be aware and invested in the things she's doing because I love her. And this is, this, this shouldn't be rare. This should be normal marriage stuff. Right. And when I love God, I care about his word. I don't just care about it. Cause I'm, cause there's, there's always like the brainy Christians, right? The brainy Christians who they love knowledge in itself so much that it's easy for them to love theology. But I'm talking about the Christians who that doesn't come natural to you. You just love theology because you love God where you're like, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't want to know any of this stuff, but you know what? Because I love God. I want to understand the Trinity. I want to understand uh, the old Testament and how to, how to apply 
the truths there to my life. I think, here's a theory of mine. I think laziness reveals what we really care about. Laziness reveals what we really care about. I'll give you an example. If you get up early to go watch a new Star Wars movie in the theater, but you won't get up early to attend church, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat you up, okay? This isn't, this, I don't do that generally speaking to people. I'm trying to bring, turn the lights on for us. It reveals that I had a motivation in one area I didn't have in the other. What was, why was I motivated in one, not the other? All right, there's a number of reasons, but one of them could be at least that I just don't care as much about these Christian things. I see them as obligations and not as like wonderful things I get to have and do. Because it's, it's, it's like something I'm, it's required of me. It's not my love. And God wants love. That's the whole purpose of it all. That's the greatest command. So your laziness shows what you love. Like, what do you like trivia of? What, what trivia do you enjoy? Maybe you, um, you're really into like knitting. (laughs) Okay. And so in knitting and loving to knit, you, you, you want to know about every little, like different kinds of knitting tools and different kinds of knitting, like yarns and things like this, or is that crocheting? I don't know. I'm, I'm so terrible at this stuff, right? But you want to know the trivia about those things and knots and different ways to tie things and how, how durable different things are. Like with your spare time, you will just naturally go and learn knit, learn knitting, knittery. It's probably called knittery. I'm confident that that's entirely accurate. And so you, you dig into those things, or maybe you're into baseball. And so in your spare time, you're looking up stats on baseball players and you're watching replays of games. I'm just saying this, that if you love God, you will naturally desire the trivia about God, right? The, the, to know the word of God, to know what God did in, in, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, to know how it applies in our lives. You will just naturally be interested in the things of God. That's just what comes with that kind of love. There's another application of loving God with all your mind that's totally different. And that would be the things that you fill your mind or you occupy your mind with. And here, oh man, we so need this today. We all have to become like, you know, for a season, we still see this, but for a season we, we, uh, we saw a lot of like online filter softwares that were coming out, Christian usually focused, where it was filtering the content you'd get from your computer, filtering the stuff from your phone. Uh, what I'm going to suggest, although some of those can be a good idea uh, for people, but what I'm going to suggest is that loving God with all your mind means that love is the filter for your, your software of life. I'm not going to watch that. I don't think it's loving God. I'm not going to go to that site. I don't think it's loving God. So then the abstinence of a Christian from gossip, from images, from too, uh, overindulgence in gaming, even, I don't think gaming's a problem. Overindulgence is, or certain games are, you know, the, the way in which the person filters themselves from those things is the filter of love. I'm going to love God with my mind. I'm not going to put that in my head. That's the idea. And then finally, Jesus says, love God with all your strength. And this is a really interesting word uh, in the Hebrew strength. Uh, in, in the Greek, it just means it's not as interesting. But in the Hebrew in particular, it kind of means like your oomph, your, your, ugh, your that's your strength. The strength is like that groan you give when you're like lifting up something heavy. That's the idea. And I think the point here is this. Loving God with your strength means you're ambitious about your love for God. It's fresh. It's on fire. There's hustle in your love for God. It's not just an occasional thing. It is your obsessive pursuit. You are on a, on a mission to love and know God in your life. This 
is more important than anything. And it's not just something you signed up for and forgot about, like some sort of timeshare. <laughs> my love for God is central to my very existence. Christians become a shell of a Christian when they aren't loving God with their strength, with their oomph. Where is your oomph engaged? Is it in you know a hobby? Is it in your business? Is it in nothing? You're just a generally lazy person? I'm just going to say loving God with your strength means getting up and doing the things that are loving towards God even when you don't feel like it at all. That's what that's where strength kicks in is when I don't feel like it because love's not a feeling, right? It's generally identified by actions and behaviors. There are those who I have to beg to read the Bible. Who I have to like talk into listening to a Bible study. Then there are those who I can't stop because they're loving God with their strength. There are those who have to really work hard to convince themselves to like pray for somebody or to pray at all. And there are those who love God with their strength. Daniel, when Daniel was praying, he was going to pray whether you liked it or not. And when the, when the, when the, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar and the governmental mandate came, you can't pray anymore in any name except Nebuchadnezzar's. He just was like, no, I'm still going to do it anyways. But there are, here's a guy standing up. I'm going to pray even if you kill me for it. And then here's other Christians all over the place going, yeah, I probably should pray. I haven't prayed in like two weeks. I'm just like, this, you, you think it's a prayer issue. It's a love issue. That's what we're getting at. This is actually a love issue. So if you fix, the, fix your heart towards God, your love towards God, and how do you do that? I'm going to give you a few reasons right now. You want to apply, you want to get more love for God in your life, and it's not just something you're trying to work up from yourself. Well, it comes from abiding in Christ. The source of the love is ultimately going to be God himself. You get born again. First, if you're not saved, you trust in Christ. And then love begins to flow through your life because it's God's work in you. But there's other things you can do. If you're a Christian who's been saved, but you've been like decreasing in your love for God, the next step is to read in Revelation, read Jesus's letter to the church in Ephesus because they were leaving their first love. This was exactly, and it didn't matter. I mean, think of the priority of love, right? It's so consistent. The Bible's so consistent. Jesus says the whole command is love. Then we have in Ephesus, we have a example of a church who is not loving God like they should, but they're still busy doing good works and they have good theology. They're rejecting false teachers and they're doing good works, but they're not loving. There's something missing in the oomph, right? In the love God with all your strength category, perhaps. And so the solution Jesus offers, which is my advice to anyone who's like, I'm losing my love for God, or I feel like I'm lacking love for God, is, you know, he says, remember the height from which you've fallen, go back and do the first works, repent and go back and do the first works. How do I translate this into my life? You go back and do those things that you have once done out of love for God. Where was that moment in your past when you were like, I just love the Lord. And so you naturally did fill in the blank. You naturally were engaging in, in worship. You were serving in your church. You were reading the word at this, at this certain rate. You were listening to a certain teacher who was just really ministering to you. Like, I'm going to say, go back and do those things. You, um, you suddenly were building godly relationships with people around you. Go back and do those things. Whatever those first works are, do those things. It will stir up more love. It's Jesus's game plan for how to change that in a person's life. Now, let's talk a little bit about the second command. Um, that was the primary command, loving God, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And oh, and side note, Jesus mentions four commands, but Deuteronomy, um, the, the passage he's quoting, uh, coming, he comes from, brings us from, is actually only lists three commands. 
right? Heart, soul, and strength. It doesn't really miss, mention mind. Jesus adds mind. Why does he add mind? Uh, possibly this is because he's just emphasizing the intellect. He just wanted to emphasize the intellect. That may be the case. It also could be because he's not quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 entirely. He's, he's summarizing the law. So it's not just a quote. It's a summary. And um, uh, intellect is in Deuteronomy 6. I just don't think it's as emphasized as it is when Jesus says it in Mark. So the second command is interesting. Um, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself, which means that you're loving God more than yourself, which again, yeah, that's the actual moral command for us as Christians and for us as humans. This is this is why you would say nobody's a good person. Well, do you love God more than yourself? Well, no. Okay, well, there you go. You're failing in the central moral issue of the universe. So we need salvation. We need grace. But the second command, love your neighbor as yourself, is followed up in Luke 10, interestingly, by the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. I won't recount it. But in the passage, the story of the Good Samaritan, it's it's told in context to the question of who's my neighbor because Jesus is like love your neighbor as yourself and the guy goes well who's my neighbor who counts who exactly do I have to love Jesus tells the good Samaritan story which is a story that basically says whoever you run into is your neighbor you don't get to discount anybody from this command of love and so that's a really interesting when you look at the context there Um, so don't just care about your neighbor like I care about them I have care about them, but rather like love them in that biblical fashion. The example Jesus gave was taking our burdens upon himself, suffering and dying for us. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't just care about them from a distance, right? When you see they have needs, you want to meet those needs just like you'd meet your own needs. They're hungry, they're starving, they're hurting. You want to meet, you want to minister to them the same way that Jesus has exampled for us. So you take care of them, you minister to them. But here's what we miss about this loving others thing. Because I think we're actually big on this today. And I think the world is actually big on this. Well, sort of big on this, right? When it comes to the philanthropy of the world, we have we have millionaire philanthropists. Um, sorry. The reason why I laugh is this, is because Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they did all their giving to be seen by men. And I just see all the time in our social media climate, people who do their giving to be seen by men. Look, you guys don't know who I donate to and how much I give. And part of that is because it, I'm not doing it for you. And it's not, it's none, it's none of your business, but there are people who've made viral YouTube videos because they did something nice for a homeless person and videotaped it so they could put it online so they could make even more money than they ever did give to that homeless person. Yeah, that happens all the time. And the comments are filled with like, oh, you're such a great person. I mean, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. Jesus says you have your reward. This is not what we're talking about. This is the philanthropy of the world. It's often based upon um, making yourself look good. Um, I think that that is, there are viral YouTube channels that are all based upon, look at me being nice to people. Watch me, watch me. Look how nice I am. Subscribe, subscribe. Let's get some advertisers. <laughs> so, so I think that that's problematic. That's an improper love. That, that, that's a lesser love. It's, it's not purely for kindness. Um, that, that sort of love that we're talking about is, is where you do the good thing and you don't look for anything in return. and Nobody really knows about it and you don't care because it wasn't about that. So we miss this with the modern philanthropy. Another example is, uh, I think it's Honda. I think it's Honda. Have you guys seen the Honda commercials? where they're like helpful Honda. I think they call it, I think it's helpful Honda. Forgive me if it's not Honda, but Honda, it, you're a joke. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I 
I drive a Honda, don't get me wrong. But Honda, these commercials are a total joke. Like, it's like my Christian worldview, just like red alarms go off as I'm watching. And they, they pull up and they give somebody $600 of gro- with, worth of groceries. Good for you. You gave someone $600 worth of groceries. Guess what? Lots of us have done that. You made a commercial about it. <laughs> and you're like, we're helpful, Honda. You gave $600 worth of groceries to somebody. You spent $80,000 making a commercial to tell everyone about it. So you could hopefully make $500,000 in car sales by giving away 600 bucks. It was just a business decision. That's the philanthropy of the world sometimes. Um, but I would say this. We, we miss that the love for man is... First, meant to be genuine and not to promote myself. And second, it's second to my love for God. That's the part we get. It's secondary to my love for God. It's a lower love. This matters. Look, I care about you guys. Um, I try to love you. I'm trying to grow towards that more and more all the time. I care about my, my wife. I care about my family. I care about the people around me. I should care about them even more. And I hopefully I'm moving in that direction all the time. But they're not as important as God. And I'm not as important as God. And either that's offensive to you because you have an ungodly morality or that's just right and perfect because you have a godly morality. This is where everybody gets it wrong. So while it is secondary, it's still a higher love than what we would generally expect because Jesus says you love them as yourself, which is an intensely high degree of love. That is something far above and beyond what I think most people would ask or most anybody would would command. It comes from the Old Testament. It's not new, but it is the center of the morality of the Old Testament. You could summarize the law with that, right? Because if you fully walk in love, you wouldn't even sin. Uh, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law, the scripture says. Now, to respond to this, some people would say, well, but Mike, I hate myself. I I can't love others as I love myself because I don't love myself. I hate myself. And I've heard this many times, especially being a youth leader for years, for like a thousand years. And, um, um, I, I want to unpack that briefly because I don't agree. I don't think anybody hates themselves. I think they use the phrase, I hate myself. And I think they have bad feelings about themselves, but I don't think they actually hate themselves. So when you hate somebody and they get in a car accident and they're injured, if you really hate them, you're happy, right? But the person who says they hate themselves, they don't want themselves to suffer. They generally, I mean, there may be like one person in a billion who does, but but generally speaking, they want themselves to do better. And often the phrase, I hate myself, is a disguise for a weird sort of disassociative experience when it comes to guilt. Let me explain. And this is this is what I've just seen. I'm not, I don't have a scripture for you here. This is my experience being a pastor and ministering to people and listening to people. The phrase, I hate myself, is often, in my experience, a way of saying, I know I've done a lot of wrong things. My life is not working out the way I want it to. I feel bad, but I kind of want to blame somebody for how bad my life experience is. So I'm going to blame myself. So when I say I hate myself, I don't actually mean me, the real me. What I kind of mean is I hate that other person who put me in this situation who I will call myself. And now, this is the weird part, now I am the victim of the things that I have done in the past and I'm not actually the perpetrator. And as people deal with the issue of guilt, they they have mismanaged guilt. They have guilt they won't manage properly and bring to God and bring to the cross. Repent and be forgiven. Instead of that, they sometimes feel bad because they think they're really bad sinners. And then they suddenly flip the switch and they feel um, like victims. As though 
they've been sinned against. And I just want to recognize we go through this roller coaster because we're, we're, we have heavy feelings of guilt. Your guilt can be taken to Jesus Christ. You don't need to do that. You don't really hate yourself. You want your life to be better, which is something you do for people you care about. <laughs> you want your life to improve. If you could snap your fingers and your attitude was better and your life was better and you were feeling better, you would, you would do it um, because we do love ourselves. And that's not necessarily wrong. What's wrong is when that love trumps caring for other people and trumps ultimately loving God first. That's when it's wrong. But you do care about yourself and that's okay. It just has to be in its right and proper place. Boy, there's so much more. I'm, but I'm in, I gotta, I got to move forward. So we're going to go to verse 32 and we're going to look at the response of the scribe. It's super interesting. I think this guy's response is neat. And there's a historical verification of the New Testament in his response, in my opinion. Let me explain it. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there's no one else beside him. Notice the cap, the all cap letters here. This is because the Old Testament is being quoted. Keep that in mind. He is one and there's no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and, the, and with all the understanding and with all the strength. He reverts back to the three, quoting Deuteronomy. And to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This man is, um, let me see if I can unpack the, the historical coolness of what you just read. This man is a scribe. Scribes are obsessively knowledgeable about the Old Testament scriptures. This is kind of their job, not just to copy them, but to understand them well. When he answers Jesus, he answers like a scribe, right? Mark doesn't always do this through Mark. Jesus doesn't even always do this. But this scribe, he jam packs six or seven different verses of the Bible from five different books together. And almost all of the things he says to Jesus are just quotes from different places in the Old Testament. Let me explain how much of what is going on here is scribal. <laughs> is like, this is neat. This is the trivia that I love, okay? He says, right, teacher, um, you've truly stated that he's one. There's no one else besides him. That's from Deuteronomy 6.4. Then the scribe says, and there's no one else besides him, the end of that phrase. That's Deuteronomy 4.35. So God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. There's no one else beside him, Deuteronomy 4.35. That's also in Isaiah 45.21. Then in verse 33, he says to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. Then to love one's neighbor as himself. That's Leviticus 19.18. Then he says it's much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this is cool for two reasons. I'll share the second one in a second. Um, that's from 1 Samuel 5, 22, rather, and from Hosea 6, 6. So we've got like seven places in the Old Testament from five different books. The scribe's answer has off the top of his head the concordance of the Old Testament that he's quoting to affirm what Jesus has said. Why is this historically so interesting? Because this is just a real conversation between a real Jesus and a real scribe. We don't expect other people to be able to do what the scribe's doing. And other people don't. When Mark talks, it's not like when Jesus talks to somebody, random, the Syrophoenician woman, she's not quoting six passages from the Old Testament. This is a mark of historicity. And they're all over the Bible. And I think that it's things people miss. So it's very neat. The second reason why this is really cool is this. One of the things the scribes, the reason why his last statement right here, it's more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why that's so cool. The scribe was first part of the Sanhedrin, which was opposed to Jesus. Second, 
the scribe is obsessed with the sacrifices. He's always asked questions and he's helping regulate, you know, is, is the sacrifice to be this way or rules about sacrifices. This is something the scribe does all the time. But even this guy recognizes, even though he would have a heart to hate Jesus because the Sanhedrin does, he would have a heart to reject Jesus and what Jesus is doing because he's so entrenched in the sacrificial system they have going on and in their slightly wrong understanding of it. Nope, he says is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy's neat. This guy's truly open to Christ. This is why Jesus responds and he says, you were not far from the kingdom of God in verse 34. Right? This is, this, is, this is a beautiful, wonderful thing, a reminder to you and me that there are people who are open. You may get jaded because you feel like you've been witnessing and witnessing and nobody's listening. Listen, people are open. People are hearing. Sometimes people get saved many years later after you share with them. Don't quit ministering Christ to individuals. Don't quit. This guy's inspired and open. And he asked, this is, this is part of the beauty of having good theology. He asked a tough question. He got a good answer. And he was that much closer to the kingdom. And this is what good apologetics does. Someone asks a hard question. You, a good Christian, give them a good, solid, thoughtful, logical, true answer. And they go, boy, that's actually pretty true. Huh. I'm, I'm, I'm one step closer. So Jesus says he's not far from the kingdom. And this, of course, is because he needs to take that final step of trusting Christ and really believing in the Messiah. That That's the thing. He's not in the kingdom just because he understands the requirement of love, but he's closer. He's that much closer. Now, um, let me move through here, make sure I'm not missing anything in my notes. Um, sorry, I just need to take a second to catch my spot. Um, yeah, I just want to point out how Jesus answers the sincere man. He he just gives him an honest answer. He doesn't play games. And this is for those of us who get used to getting lots of questions. We can fail to give sincere and thoughtful and careful answers. Um, Jesus doesn't play games with the guy. He's not annoying sincere people with non-answers. He's giving him a real answer. And sometimes we have to relax. We get fatigued answering tw trick questions all the time, especially those of us like you and me who witness online a lot. You get a lot of those trick questions. Um, if you're not sure whether the person's sincere or not, I'd rather just treat them like they're sincere and then you won't accidentally hurt that one person who's genuine when you get that scribe who shows up. He gives the heart of the law. He gives it in an inspiring way. Um, I think it's beautiful. And then my final exhortation to you is this. In closing, the standard that I've just shared with you, the moral rule that the world forgets that even Christians get wrong as they think that loving people is the, is the whole story instead of just being one way of expressing our ultimate love for God. The thing is that as I share this with you, you're probably like well aware that you, you, you fall short of this standard every single day. Can I encourage you? We do not enter God's presence by our good works. While this is the standard and it will never change, that standard of loving God, we must set that ab ab above us and reach for it as our high calling and standard. But with the awareness that we need grace every minute, every hour, you must be resting upon the fact that Jesus went to the cross fulfilling that command. Loving God above all else, loving his neighbor as himself, that Jesus, God himself, doing all of the work in our place as the ultimate representative of humankind, he comes and he does it all for us. I rest in the finished work of Christ. 
So the two dangers I see with this love thing is one, that you lower the standard of holiness that is perfect love towards God. Don't lower that standard. Don't make excuses or place for sin or any of that. Keep that standard up here. But on the other side, the other error is forgetting God's grace and then walking in like defeat where you're just going to give up and you're going to quit. God's grace gives me the courage to continue reaching to his high call of holiness. And that's, I think, the only place a Christian can be. And what's beautiful about this, if you're a Christian who is daily reaching for love towards God and love towards others, then you are always aware of your, you're humble because you're aware of your failings and that you fall short. You're grateful because you're, you're experiencing God's grace and you know that you're getting that every day. And you're also one of the best people to be around because you're not just thinking that holiness is, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's of my behaviors. You recognize that it's really just love towards God and love towards others. This is the command the world forgets. In every video, in every movie, even the version of morality you see, it's not loving God. It's just loving people. And that's wrong. So I hope this has been a blessing to you. Next time, Jesus is going to finally ask them a question. And it is it is brilliant. Now, this is several weeks out. I'm going to give a little quick announcement about what's coming in December here at the end of November and December for my YouTube channel and for my online ministry stuff. So I want to share that with you in a second. But preview, on January 3rd, at, at, you know, in, in my local church, I'll teach. And then on the 4th, I'll be with you guys January the 4th. And I'll talk about Jesus ans answering uh, them with a question. And he actually traps them into good theology, showing how, this is what's exciting, Jesus uses the Old Testament and a riddle passage, a, tr a very difficult passage to try to prove that the Messiah is actually God. That's big, right? This is huge. In, in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, where some people like to say Jesus isn't really aware of any deity here, which is nonsense, here he's using the Old Testament to show that he is God beautiful stuff. That's January um, 4th. Now, if, if you're one who wants to come to my Sunday evening service, we're probably going to be meeting um, in a play in Bellflower, Bellflower, California at Ricky's Italian food restaurant. That's probably where we're going to meet because they have a covered patio and it's heated and we've worked out something with the owner there. So you're, you don't just go to Hosanna, go to Ricky's R-I-C-C-I apostrophe S, Ricky's Italian. And that's in Bellflower. You'll find it. They got really good calzones, by the way. Also, for the YouTube channel, um, I'm not going to be here this Friday because the day after Thanksgiving, we don't ever have a live stream that day. This Friday, I won't be doing it. And I, I have kind of like a I don't know schedule for the next couple weeks. And here's why. I'm picking up the Passion Translation Project. And in the first few weeks of December, I'm interviewing a number of scholars who are going to give their scholarly feedback after they've done research and work on the Passion Translation, showing like I have major scholars. I've got like Craig Blomberg and Douglas Moo and, and Daryl Bach. And I've got guys that are known and respected. Um, they're going to be looking at and giving their feedback on the Passion Translation. Finally, it's been a long time coming. And I will be uploading those videos. I'll start at least in December. You'll get at least one or two of them in the month of December, maybe more. We'll see how it goes. Other than that, it's going to be a little random on the YouTube channel for the next month. In January, I'm back on two live streams a week, sometimes three videos a week, maybe even more. We'll see where it goes. Thank you so much, y'all, for being here. God bless you. I appreciate you joining. Loving the word of God. This is an act of love towards God. You don't have to be here studying the Bible, learning all the nitty-gritty details, listening to long Bible studies. This is an act of love towards God, and it's an act of worship towards him. And so, good for you. All right, take care. Oh, let me pray. Lord, we do love you, and we want to love you more, a lot more, with everything we've got. 
We recognize that we fall short every day, but we don't want to just be content falling short. We want to be reaching high up towards that goal of loving you more and more and more. And so our prayer is more forever, constantly more love for you in our lives, more love for others. And that that would be the, that would be the thing that leads to holiness in our behavior is our love for you, that we would never fail to remember that sin against you is stopped by love for you. Help us see that, Lord. With the struggles we have daily, minute by minute, this is about love. And love is our motive to transform our lives and to bless others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.